0: So yeah, we're in Acts chapter 2. If we could pop the text up on the screen, that'd be really great. Um, we're going to sort of uh, set ourselves in and around this story. So chapter 1, we saw the Holy Spirit come, and this is kind of the first big sermon. This is the first preach that Luke records for us anyway, so you, we, we're dipping into it. We're not getting the first couple of lines of Peter's sermon, but um, we're going to just digest, digest some of that. I just realized I've got my daughter's hairband. That's not a good look for a preacher <laughs> take that off. Um, something I want us to think about as, um, as we start going through is uh, this, the whole big narrative of Acts. I, uh, if, if, if you get a chance, read through it, but I don't know how it would get on if it was been presented as a movie script. I don't know if, um, if some guy in Hollywood would, how he would, how he would deal with a script like this. I don't know if you'd get a book like Axe published today if you read right to the end you know, the, to follow the thread of the story. I mean, you get introduced to this guy, Peter, and you think, right, we've read about Peter and Luke. This guy, you know, he's come to faith, and he's got his flaws, he makes these mistakes, he chops somebody's ear off, he tries to walk on the water, and he falls in. But you're kind of rooting for him, aren't you, Peter? You're kind of like, is that right? You're kind of like, yeah, Peter's a good guy. And then and you see Peter in the story of Acts, and he goes from the guy who's got the, the flaws and the failures, and he gives this, this speech this sermon, this empowered, just awesome sermon. And then you're like, yeah, this is awesome. I could read about this guy. And then you get to chapter 12. So get get home, read through the book of Acts, do it in one sitting, be an awesome, you know, servant for Christ and get into the book of Acts. And you realize that Peter just gets dropped, you know, just gets discarded in, in, the, in the narrative. And along the way, you've, in, think chapter six or chapter seven, you've got this guy called Stephen, gives this heroic sort of speech um, um, to, to sort of defend the faith. And then he's is stoned to death, and you trying kind to of get into him, and he's gone. And then you get, you get the guy that you, that, that, that's over, um, that's over Stephen's death, laughing. This this guy that you kind of read about, you kind of kind of despise. And I guess one of the things we've got to do is try to see this from the perspective of a first reader. We know this quite well. We know this story quite well. But imagine you're reading this for the first time, and. And you've got this guy just laughing away at the death and sort of just watching on at the death of Stephen and, and pursuing these Christians. He takes up the, the role, the anchor of, of part of the main story. And you think, I'm not rooting for you. And then you've got this storyline that develops. The apostle Paul, who was Saul, becomes a Christian. And, and the story sorry, sort of builds to this sort of climax. If you read through to the end of the story, there's, there's three big defenses of the faith that you come to at the end. Three big trials, and you think, okay, this is, this is at last. Maybe this is where the story's headed. Maybe it's some kind of legal drama. Maybe that's what we're getting into. And then you get to the end of these three trials, and you don't find out whether he's guilty or not guilty. And, the, and it really, if you want in like the big Hollywood crescendo ending, it really kind of peters out. Chapter 28, um, the Apostle Paul is under house arrest And there's this little line that says, and he just carried on preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. It's a bit of a, you know, if you're the first reader, if you're Theophilus, it's a bit of an unsatisfactory ending. I think if the book was getting written today and some big Hollywood director came in, he'd say something like, well, do you know that guy Peter that we were rooting for at the start? Maybe we should grab him back and he could come in with a sword, steal into Rome. And, you know, Peter and Paul could, I don't know, create some sort of rebellion and then charge back out to Jerusalem. Or maybe, maybe Paul could get married. That's a nice ending to a story, isn't it? Or there could be some grand battle or something like that. But the story just sort of just dissipates, or at least that's how it feels a little bit. But I can imagine Theophilus, the guy who Luke tells us at the start he's writing to, and at the start of Acts he reminds us he's writing to, reads this book and he gets to the end of the story. And what he will realize is this is a story that goes on and on and on. This isn't the end of the story. This story is not one of those stories that has that climactic ending that you, that you shut up and put on your bookshelf. And you go, that's a good story. Theophilus reads through this, and, he, and as he puts the book down, or the scroll down, if that's what it was, he would realize that, man, I'm, I'm part of this story. To deal with this story, you've got to become part of this story. This story goes on. And it goes on. And it, it, I think he would have, and we sort of camped out in verse chapter 1, verse 8. Um, it's not going to be up there, on, on but you, you might be familiar with it last week. And, and I think he would have these verses sort of ringing in his ears. Wait for the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Ringing in his ear. this This idea that this is a story that you become part of. One thing I want us to, a picture I really want us to get, so a bit of big picture act stuff, is that this, and because I, I think it really, sh- it, re- this is the story of the church, we're tracing back to this, you know, the story of us, it's the, it's the first Christians and the first church, and this story really helps us, and sh- I think it really shapes what we are as a church. You, you read through the storyline, and, and chapter 1 verse 8 really helps us get ahead, ahead on it, Wait for the Holy Spirit. You will be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's a picture that goes out and out and out. And you follow the plot line of of the story. And geographically, it goes out and out and out. And even culturally, it goes out and out and out. And all this stuff comes along. All this stuff happens. There's all this suffering. There's all this turmoil. And there's all this trauma. But it's just about a story that goes on and on and on and on. And you read through it thinking... Man, I'm not sure this is actually about. It's called the Acts of the Apostles, isn't it? Isn't it? it? It's called the Acts of the Apostles, isn't it? But you read through it and you think, I'm not sure how much it is about the Acts of the Apostles and how much more it is about Jesus' spirit and the fact that Jesus' church will triumph and carry on and go on and on and on and on. And what you see as the story goes out, and this is really helpful when we think about what church is. This is something I really want us to dwell on. What We're going back to the original church. What is church? What is it? The story goes on and on. It goes out and out, and it finds problems all the time. We hate problems, don't we? When we run into trouble, we kind of just assume that we're doing it wrong. You do something for church, and it becomes a bit hard. You think, God's not in it. must be the wrong thing to do. Read through the book of Acts. There's trouble all the way. As the message goes out, goes out to the next place, there's trouble. There's people that believe this. There's people that have experienced this. There's people that have got this view of God, and all the while there's this trouble, and the story goes out. This is what church is. The Book of Acts is so helpful because when we read it, it shapes us out to the world. It forces us to look out of ourselves. One of the one of the things I think church, one of the things that I think church does historically, and if you look, um, if you look around the UK, we were in Merthyr just the other week, and. Uh, there are loads of churches. We have done, we have been evangelized. We have been reached. It has been incredible. The story has gone out. And we asked for a, we asked for a taxi back from, from the reception, and, we, and they asked us where we wanted to go. We said, it's near the chapel. And in a lovely Welsh accent, the guy said, and I'm not going to do it to offend the Welsh. He said, there's hundreds of chapels around here. And there are, there are hundred, especially in that part of Wales, there are hundreds of chapels. We have been reached, this message. Has gone out, but one of the one of maybe one of the flaws in the church is that we get comfortable really quickly, and we kind of forget that this message is one that goes out to everybody. That's kind of the that's kind of the story of the church. It's one that just keeps on going out. It's why Paul brought us here. It's why somebody founded the church at Pontifract. You could trace the line right back, right back, right back, because the story is one of reaching out. And that doesn't just affect the shape of our church. I guess it affects the shape of us. We are people who are to having experienced this awesome news, be people that are looking all the time to, to share it and bring it out. And if you look back at the way Jesus talked, you kind of realize these, these kingdom values that he banged on about, kept telling stories about lost sheep, about you know, the fact that you'd, 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 just, you'd park all your sheep and you think, oh, there's one that's lost, I need to find that sheep. I need to go out and find that sheep. He told stories about banquets That having invited a bunch of guests that didn't want to come, he threw out this audacious invite. He said, well, let's just get whoever we can get in to come. And you realize that as Jesus presented the kingdom and the church picks up in Acts, that this story is about reaching out to the people. I heard a quote, a preacher the, the other week, who said that church should not be a museum for the righteous, but a hospital for the sick and I thought about that, and I th- and I thought, man, sometimes, sometimes churches become that, don't they? Over over the years, these great churches just end up becoming museums for righteous souls. And and Jesus says to us, no. I came for the sick. What is church? So we get to this this awesome sermon that Peter gives where three thousand people are, con- are converted. And I and I would guess. Remember Remember the picture we had last week. We had this picture of the. Early church, often huddled together um, in a room, kind of just a little bit scared. There's a few, a few references to this. The end of the Gospels, the start of Acts, the church is gathered together, and we had this thought of as a few fishermen could easily be snuffed out, snuffed out by the powers that be, and yet they prevailed. And I'm sure Peter would rather have given this first sermon to a bunch of like-minded disciples in a safe place but that's not the shape of this story of Acts. Peter has got to go outside to the baying, angry mob. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. This is the start of the sermon, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Listen to the, like the sting of his first sermon. And one of the things that we'll pick up is that not all sermons are like this in the book of Acts. We've got to hold them Loosely, to a certain degree, the, the, the style of sermon changes. But this is the first one that we get. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, I don't know if he pointed at this point, I imagine that he pointed to this, to this bane mob, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by kneeling him to the cross. Man, that's, uh, that's an aggressive start, isn't it? I, was, uh, I remember when I got married, a, a friend of mine gave me some advice about public speaking. I was a, like a nervous wreck. I was in Scotland, at my wedding, didn't want to make things any worse than they already were. And uh, he said, um, Three bits of advice for you show them the whites of your teeth. I haven't really got white teeth anymore. He said, Show them the whites of your teeth. Show them that you are very confident, you're comfortable. Do your fly, which is a piece of public speaking advice that I, I've carried on to this day. And then he said, Don't upset the natives. And I managed not to upset the natives, but that's not what Peter does. I don't know how he got on with the other two. But at the end, he really, he ends up confronting the natives. And I want you just to think about the fact that this is the mob. This is the mob that a couple of weeks earlier, and he addresses this in his speech, that they took Jesus off to a cross and crucified him. Those are the people that he's talking to. And he says to them, you did this. You crucified him. You did it. And in case they missed it the first time, it's not up there, but we'll come to it a bit later on. Verse 36, worth paying attention when, when something gets said twice. He says it again. You, you did this. He doesn't let him off with it. He's personal. You did this. Jesus. And he, and he like draws attention to the character of Jesus, quotes some Old Testament scripture. He says, do you remember Jesus? The good, compassionate, kind, gentle, messianic, miraculous, wonderful, godly man. You took him. You dragged him up that hill and you whacked the nails into him. You crucified him. You did this. This is the start of the sermon. Stinging. But worth thinking about. I was, um, I was, We did the Stuart Townend gig. Um, if you could put the lyrics up to that song. And uh, just with the, with the thought of this critique of Peter to the to the to the listening mob that that you did this you drove the nails into his hand you crucified this Christ I was um, singing along to the Stewart Town and at uh, the Stuart Town in concert and um, I don't know if it it was because it had been a stressful day um, and I'm get I get mo- I'm getting more emotional as I'm getting older and and I, it had been a stressful day I'd made some shocking administrative errors with the tickets that I was organising and all that sort of thing and I, we got into singing this song. And I felt, you know, that way, and I don't know how it is for women, but for men, it's this horrible moment when you realize you're going to cry. It's just a horrible thing, and you're in public, and your, my bottom lip goes, and my eyes are getting wet, and I'm, and I'm telling myself, this is ridiculous, come on, this is you organize this concert, you're 38, this is not the time for tears. But as this song went on, um, I think it was what you call a fresh revelation of the truth of the story. So If you could skip on to the next verse, just... Flick through, is that possible? This is the power of the cross, this is the chorus, go on again. So the story goes on, and I'm singing this song, Oh to see the pain written on your face, Bearing the awesome weight of sin, Every bit of thought, every evil deed, Crowning your bloodstained brow, And my, and my eyes are getting wetter and wetter, And now the daylight flees, now the ground beneath quakes, As its maker bows his head, Curtain torn in two, dead I race to life, You know, my spine is tingling, There's five or six hundred people there all singing, if You could skip on again, and then I get to this bit. Oh, to see my name. And I was gone. It was embarrassing. I was a wreck. And Miriam, I remember Miriam looking around at me like, Dad, what's wrong with you? Have you what's, what's happened to you? Oh, to see my name written in the wounds. For through your suffering, I am free. Death is crushed to death. Life is mine to live. One through your selfless love. And I, I guess, thank you, I guess I'd, I knew this. I knew in a, in a sense, theologically speaking, that I did this. Christ on the cross, nails bashed in. I kind of knew from Sunday school. You know, we, you know, you sing the songs. We did this. It reminds you. We did this. And I guess I just never dwelt on it, or maybe I wasn't. I'd never gotten into that emotional state. But I was completely gone. And I saw a fresh. Maybe I even saw really for the first time. Yep, I had some hand in this. I played some part in this terrible story. I was watching a, a sermon on this passage of the week and. The guy used a really helpful illustration. I don't know if you've seen the, the Passion of the Christ. seen the story, the Passion of the Christ. Um, Mel Gibson directed it, Uncle Mel, as we call him. Um, but there come, they comes to a, a seat. There's, there's, there's only he has a cameo in it. So I read, you know, Mel Gibson's got a cameo in this film, but the, you won't see him. You won't see him anywhere in the film. He, he, he would only agree to play what to one to play one part, and it's the part where. And you might remember this, that you can just see the hand there on the cross and there's somebody who's bashing the nails in to the side of his hand. That was the only part that he would, he would take and I thought, man, that is... Because I don't know where Mel Gibson is with his faith, I don't know, but he seems to know, seems to know something. He's, he knows that in a real sense that he has some part to play in Jesus upon that cross. And what Peter does in this moment is he, he just he kills this mob with this awesome sermon. Just with that thought, is like, you did this. You did this. And all of a sudden, maybe not all of a sudden, but as as the sermon progresses, you can see what happens. These people realize their own state. This is what I think the witness of Christ does to us. We have to face the kind of people that we are. We have to Look on ourselves, or we are faced with the brutal ugliness of ourselves. When we're stood in front of God, when we come under His word, when somebody preaches to us a good sermon, or when we read through the story of the Gospels, we're exposed. Do you know what I mean? We just see ourselves for the way that we really are. I had this this horrible moment. Um, it was a couple of weeks ago. Jude and the kids were away, and my mum came around out the blue and I degenerate pretty quickly when I'm on my own at home do you know what I mean it goes downhill pretty quick and she came she came round out the blue and I was having a TV dinner some beans on my face for for reasons that are unknown one sock on I was doing the laundry just this just clothes all over the house and mum came in with this look that said what's happened to you you know this has been three days without your wife and this is this is this is you and it's like yeah this is this is the reality of me this is it there's, there's no hiding it. And you do that thing where you rush around and you say, and you like grab, you know, when your house is a tip, somebody comes around and you grab two or three plates, like that's going to help in any way, shape or form. And you say something like, oh, well, I've been eating salads and couscous and I've been eating all this sort of stuff. And the reality is just so clear and so plain to be seen. It's like, yeah, this is you. And this is what, I think this is what God says to us through his word over and over again. It's like, it's, I know what you're like. like. And we come to church so often and we're able to do like, the smiley face present the, the nice, respectable image and all the rest of it. And when we come under God's words, when we come into his presence, he sees the, he sees the train wreck that, it, that it is us sometimes. He cuts us open with his word. And one of the things that we'll see as we go through the book of Acts is that the church grows. The story grows. People get saved. People come to faith as, the, as people find out the truth about themselves. The church grows as people find out the truth about themselves. Second thing about these witnesses, I don't know if you could pop the text back up, verse 29, if you can find that one, is that these people become convinced. So first of all, they I've done some alliteration. It's not really my style, but I've gone for it this week. So first of all, they were con- confronted, and second of all, these people were convinced. I don't know about you, but sometimes... I've definitely had periods in my Christian walk where I've not wanted to investigate the resurrection too too closely, in case I found out it wasn't true. I've not wanted to dig around too deeply into that. But what we need to realise um, from the start of this story, in Luke's agenda, is he he needs us to know the you know the start of Luke's gospel chapter one. He wants Theophilus to know the certainty of this stuff. I I. And maybe as a teenager, I remember thinking, I don't look too closely into this. My world would crumble if I found out this wasn't true. And Luke writes this stuff so that we know that this is true. This is certain. And, and we can see that in the way Peter preaches. Peter's got every confidence in this story. It's, it's the kind of the basis for his sermon. He says to him, you know God promised his spirit. Would move in a phenomenal way at Pentecost. He, he, he quotes Joel and he points back and he said, "You know, you know that the kind of miraculous v- s- s- things that have been happening. You know, you know what this means." He talks to them about things that they know. He says, "You know what's coming. You know that when we saw the Spirit moving this way, God was speaking." He quotes. um David in the Psalms, and he said, "You knew that we were going to get a messianic figure. You you knew this was going to happen. You knew we were going to encounter somebody who was like David, but not like David. He was like David in that it was kingly and that it was a prophet, but he was more than David, and that death wouldn't have a hold on him." And he says, finally, says, "You knew that we were going to see this person who had power over death." And as and as he's preaching it, I can imagine him pointing over to the tomb that is empty. Brothers, I can tell you confidently, this is the basis of his sermon, that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day, but he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses to that fact. He doesn't like I did when I was a teenager, shy away from the resurrection. He points to the tomb. He says, this is, this is something that we know. So I want you to just to dwell on the, the fact that he's bold enough to say, look, we know this. We know that the tomb's empty. Go and check it out if you don't believe me. Go and see. Not only is it empty, we've seen him walking around amongst us. And what you've what you kind of got to think about is the Jews really, the Jewish leaders rather, and the Roman authorities, they, they didn't want this to happen. It, Christianity could have been quashed pretty quickly if they could find the body. If they could just go, well, this is the body and he's dead. Or they could kill him and keep him dead. But that is not the story. And that is what Peter's saying. Peter's saying, you know, they had every chance and they had every intention of, of keeping him dead and, and burying him in that tomb. And yet, look, he's not here. He's risen. And the other thing you've got to think about, you've got to say, well, so if you're, not, if you're new to faith, if this is not something you've thought about before, can I, can I believe this? How, how can I receive this information? How can I deal with it? These are the, these are the witness accounts. Something to just chew over if, if you're like me and this was something you struggled with when you were younger. Think about the church. Peter gives this sermon where he points to the empty tomb and 3,000 people are added to the church. I've got to tell you now, there's lots of reasons people might want to come to church today. You know, you might rock, you might want to rock up here because the the music's awesome or you know it's it's quite a cool place to be and there's a bunch of reasons that you could have for going to church. In these times with this first church there's only one reason you go to church. Because people were getting persecuted, people were getting put on crosses. There's only one reason you'd go and that's because the resurrection was true. And under Massive persecution from the Roman authorities. You've seen these old films from the 50s and 60s where Christians are getting killed left, right, and center. Under massive persecution, huge, you know, huge suffering, huge persecution, ridiculously, the church grows. And it grows exponentially and phenomenally. Why? Because the resurrection was true. So these people, these witnesses were confronted. And they were convinced. And maybe that's one of the reasons we're here today, because people were convinced about the resurrection. Finally, the last point. These people were cut to the heart. I don't know if you could skip on to verse 36. When they had to kind of wrestle with all this and, and, and deal with all this, they were completely cut to the heart. So Peter says... Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said, Peter, to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what what are we going to do now? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. They'd, They'd got it. And they'd got it in a real, authentic way. In a, in a way that would change the direction of their lives, they were going to repent. They were going to turn in another direction. So, when we think about this, just for a second, think about this concept that, we, that we're challenged with to be witnesses for Christ. This is our task. We, you will be my witnesses. It's what we are. There is a huge, and here's our problem there's a huge distrust of the church at the moment. And maybe it's been for the last little while, there's this, I mean, maybe it is any big meta-narrative, any big, anyone claiming to have the absolute authority, or absolute truth, we live in the times of fake news. I mean, there was a time you could put on news at 10 and it was like gospel truth, and now even BBC News, you put it on, you think, I don't know if I believe this. People don't trust the way they used to trust. So if people come in, and God willing, people will come into this building and listen to me. And there will be a cynicism and a skepticism about a religious perspective. There will be. They don't trust us. And there's, you know, there's, there's loads of reasons for that. And with you know, scientific advancements and all the rest of it, the the, the word, um, come, the, the, declares, the, the voice that declares God's word is just not trusted in that same way. And you might have a friend or a colleague you know at work or whatever else it is, and, and you're aware of this. You're aware, like, if I present this to you, you're not going to trust. Why have you got to believe what I've got to say? means that for us, I think now more than ever, we have to back up what we say with what we do. It's just as important. And at the start of Acts, we realize that the story of the church is the continuation of all, Acts chapter 1 verse something or other, we are the continuation of all that Jesus began to say and to teach, both to do and to teach what he said and how he lived at the same time. One of the things that we'll see in Acts over the next couple of weeks, particularly next week when Matt comes to preach, is that people are drawn to the way that Christians live. One of the things that we've got to be aware of now as we witness for him, it is just as important what we do as what we say. These people heard this message and deep within their souls they were cut It affected their innermost being. And as it affected their innermost being, every action of their life, the church grew. 3,000 people were added. More and more people were added. And the story grew and reached the edge of the world. You might well think that Cass is the center of the universe. I don't know if you think that. But if you look at the Bible maps and you take a biblical perspective, we are at the edge of the earth. This message, because of the truth, of these witnesses because of their convictions has reached us we are the witnesses we are the scared fishermen that huddle in rooms we are the ragtag army we are the spirit filled witnesses that go and confront the angry mob we are the crucifiers who are cut to the heart this is the story of us